1: The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together, a path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director
2: of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anagreta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and a Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Sharon, it's great to be with you for a very important conversation today.
1: Hi Anna Greta. Yes, today we're talking about some research that we all need to take notice of and it's a topic that I really wish we didn't have to discuss. And a word of warning to our listeners as we begin, we're talking about some challenging issues, issues related to child abuse, also to sexual assault and to suicide. And if you need support after listening to this conversation, We'll leave some numbers in the show notes and we'll also give those numbers at the end of the conversation today. On the 3rd of April this year, a special supplement of the Medical Journal of Australia was published and that supplement published the findings of the Australian Child Maltreatment Study. This is a remarkable study, which was funded by the National Health and Medical Research Council and led by Professor Ben Matthews with an incredibly experienced interdisciplinary team of researchers. It's the first national survey in the world to examine in detail the experiences of all forms of child maltreatment and the associated health and social consequences. The results of the study are confronting. The headline finding is that the majority of Australians, just over 62%, have experienced maltreatment in childhood. The impacts of maltreatment on children's lives is devastating. And in my research, I often hear children speak about their experiences. And I can never forget the expression on a nine-year-old boy's face when he asked me, do you think my dad can still love me? when he hits me and tells me I'm stupid. The impacts of child maltreatment are immediate. They make being a child a frightening and damaging experience, and they're long-lasting. The Australian Child Maltreatment Study examined the impacts of child maltreatment across the life course, highlighting increased risks of severe and persistent health and social problems. 30 years ago, Nelson Mandela said that there can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. To quote one of the articles in that recent supplement of the Australian Medical Journal, we now have stark and chilling evidence of the hardship many children endure across their lives as a result of actions of those who are responsible for caring for them. This is an issue that must cause us to reflect on the soul of our society and to bring change. And to talk through all of this with us today, we're delighted to have one of the lead researchers and co-author of several articles, Professor Daryl Higgins. Daryl is Director of the Institute of Child Protection Studies at the Australian Catholic University, and before joining ACU, Daryl was Deputy Director of Research at the Australian Institute of Family Studies. Daryl, welcome to Policy Forum Pod. It's wonderful to have you with us today.
0: Oh, thank you for the opportunity to share with you and your listeners uh, some, of the, uh, some of the research.
1: And to our listeners, in terms of full disclosure, Daryl and I um, have worked together in the past. I certainly didn't work on this study, but we're about to embark on a, an Australian Research Council um, funded project. Um, so Daryl and I know each other well, and I know this is going to be an amazing conversation Daryl, I wonder if we can ask you to begin by sharing with us the aim and also the approach or the methodology that you took in the Australian Child Maltreatment Study.
0: Yeah, thanks, Sharon. So look, the the aim, first of all, was really to, um, to do a comprehensive study that looked at the prevalence of all five forms of child abuse and neglect. And it grew out of a recommendation of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, because they were keenly aware that we had no reliable population level prevalence data, um, they were relying on the reports about um, sexual abuse that were being made to the statutory child protection departments. And everybody knows that that is a way undercount of the actual um, extent of uh, child sexual abuse. Um, and so one of their recommendations was that we need a new national prevalence study, but in doing it, the cost and the um, amount of effort that goes into doing a study like that, that it shouldn't just be of institutional child sexual abuse, that it should be of sexual abuse in all different contexts, and while we're at it, that it should also be a study of all uh, five forms of, uh, of abuse and neglect. And so, um, having been involved with uh, a number of other researchers who contributed um, a, a report to the Royal Commission on what the scoping of such a study should look like, I was then delighted to be asked by Ben and the team from QUT to be part of this um, grant uh, that's been funded by the NHMRC. And our goal not only to, was to um, calculate the prevalence of each of the five forms of abuse and neglect but to look at its overlap, so to look from a sort of a person-centred perspective about how many people uh, have experienced not just one, but multiple types of abuse, and then as you pointed out in your introduction, to look at the health consequences, both in terms of physical health and mental health in particular, but also health utilisation, so that we can then calculate what's called burden of disease. And one of my colleagues is leading on that piece of analysis currently, because we know that... Um, child abuse and neglect um, not only is harmful for children, um, but that harm carries on into adulthood, and that costs us as a society. Um, and there's lots of um, incredibly smart people who have formulas that they can apply to the kind of data that we have in order to calculate what that cost is in terms of what's called dailies, disability-adjusted life years. Um, so I think our, that that was really the aim of our study, to be able to kind of do those two things, the, the national prevalence um, to really make up for the gaps that our data assets in Australia has because of our reliance up till now on um, the statutory child protection reports and then to look at its consequences across the lifespan.
2: In the introduction, Sharon's referred to that shocking headline finding of over 62% of Australians surveyed reporting experience of maltreatment in childhood. I wonder, Daryl, if you might talk us through some of the other key findings in terms of the prevalence of child maltreatment that our listeners really do need to hear.
0: Yeah. So um, what we found was um, that, as you said, more than 62% had experienced one or more forms of child abuse and neglect. So the least commonly Um, reported experience was of neglect. So that was 8.9%, which I've got to say is still incredibly high. And still, you know, when you compare it to um, the number of reports that come to the attention of statutory child protection authorities, um, it still shows that we're only picking up, you know, a a drop in the bucket in terms of the number of Australians who have experienced um, uh, even less frequent uh, types of harm, such as neglect. The next... uh, highest one was 28.5% experienced sexual abuse, Uh, 30.9% experienced uh, emotional abuse, 32% experienced physical abuse, and then topping off the list was um, 39.6% of the population um, saying that they've been exposed to domestic violence. So, across all of those different findings, when you put them all together, what that meant was that 62.2% of adults aged 16 and over said that they'd had a childhood experience of one or more types. Um, As I I mentioned at the beginning, what I was particularly interested in in the analysis that I led was to focus on what we call multi-type maltreatment. So How many people had experienced not just one, but two or more forms of abuse and neglect? And so, what we found was that, um, in fact, um, almost two thirds of those who had experienced a form of uh, abuse or neglect had, in fact, experienced um, two or more different types. And that really changes things. So, you know, having. Overall, you know, 39.4% of the entire population experience multi-type maltreatment is telling us that this is not just one um, narrowly defined type of harm. This is across two or more different domains, if you like, of maltreatment um, that, you know, four out of 10 Australians report having experienced uh, and that's quite I think shocking when we think about the um the extent of that harm um, and its likely impacts then on their well-being across life.
1: Daryl, as you say that that evidence around the the multiple um forms of of maltreatment that children and young people are experiencing is really disturbing in terms of of what it means for their lives as children um, and what it means for their their futures as as adults. In one of the articles that you lead um, in that supplement in the Medical Journal of Australia, you talk about the risk factors that lead to child maltreatment. Can you just talk us through some of those risk factors, the, the risk factors that you looked at and what you found And perhaps particularly how those risk factors play out in terms of those multiple types of abuse.
0: Yeah, so we were interested in understanding um, particularly how family-related adversities um, might account at least in part for those experiences of abuse and neglect. So we looked at um, four types of adversity in addition, obviously, to the the five types of child maltreatment that we were looking directly at. Um, And so we looked at um, parental separation and divorce um, we looked at family mental illness, um, family substance abuse problems, and also family economic hardship. And what we found was that all of those four factors were significantly related, not so much to a single type of maltreatment, but to, as I said before, multi-type maltreatment. So they doubled each of those risk factors, each of those family, you know, kind of adversities, doubled the risk, of a person experiencing multi-type maltreatment. And I think that's that's worrying in and of itself. What's even more worrying is that when we looked then at the um, outcomes that are associated with maltreatment, we found that multi-type maltreatment was up there with the, the worst experiences in terms of its likelihood of being associated with mental health disorders um, and also with a range of uh, health, uh, health conditions and health use behaviours. So we really, really um, need to focus our attention on this incredibly um, important issue that maltreatment types don't just occur in isolation, and that when they do, that there's a range of constellations that may, in fact, be amenable to prevention or early intervention or targeted intervention at the family level to either reduce the likelihood that children are exposed to this quite toxic form of harm, um, or to provide, you know, targeted supports and intervention to address them. um,
1: Daryl, your survey involved different cohorts, different age cohorts, beginning, I think, with young people the age of 16 um, and then went through to to, um, far older people, I'm wondering what you saw in terms of the results that that you've just shared with us across different age groups. Um, If we look at those different age groups, we may be able to get a sense of trends over time. Um, If we compare the youngest cohort with the older cohorts, are we seeing improvements or declines in terms of, of children's experience of safety?
0: Yeah, look, that's a, it's a tricky question, um, and and that was another element of our, our kind of survey um, methodology was to what we call oversample on the young people. We wanted to have um, more of our participants in that group because they're the ones whose childhood experiences of maltreatment or of absence of maltreatment is the most recent, um, and they're the ones who um, we're going to be then looking at the long term consequences for you know the longest period. So we had three. And a half thousand participants who were aged 16 to 24, and then we had a thousand participants in each of the kind of 10 year deciles going backwards from that. So, a uh, thousand who were aged 25 to 34, and then another thousand aged 35 to 44, etc., going back to the oldest group, which was 65 plus. Now, across that um, in general, we found that there were some slight differences. So, um, the, the lowest um the cohort that had the lowest prevalence of uh, child abuse and neglect was the oldest group so the sixty five pluses and it's hard to um, get a handle on exactly why that is because all of the intervening ones they were you know they were quite high what what we did find though is some small evidence that things are improving in relation to um, lower prevalence of um, the youngest cohort compared to the rest of the, the sample, particularly in relation to sexual abuse, but not in all of its forms. Um, and we also found it in relation to physical abuse, that there was a, um, a, a small reduction. What's unfortunate, though, is that it seems to be offset in some ways, by increases in others. So exposure to domestic violence was even higher in that group than in uh, the older um, cohorts. Um, and in the analysis that I focused on, we found that multi-type maltreatment, again, wasn't um, wasn't dropping, that it was still high in that um, youngest uh, cohort, the, th- the 16 to 24-year-olds. So we still have got a long way to go. We can't certainly say, oh, we've got, um, you know, age-related declines, um, that we can just pat ourselves on the back and say everything's going well. Our study certainly presents a um, a, a pretty damning picture of the level of child maltreatment experienced by um, the, the, the young people who participated in our survey.
2: And the consequences, of course, are significant. You mentioned, Daryl, that financial hardship is one of the identifiable factors that increases the risk of childhood maltreatment. Sharon and I, of course, find ourselves re- frequently discussing her remarkable work on the impacts of poverty on cho- children and the impacts uh, on, on for those children both in their childhood and then later on. Uh, as In my work as a cardiologist, I often find myself wondering just how much ill health and disease we might prevent if we addressed some of these issues like child poverty And recently, of course, on the podcast, we had Sharon Friel talking about some of the structural drivers for ill health in our society, be it the social determinants of health or her recent work on the commercial determinants that drive so much disease. We know that our childhood is a strong determinant for subsequent adult health. So what does the Australian Child Maltreatment Study tell us about the impacts of child abuse on health and social indicators throughout life?
0: Look, that's a great question, and we focused in this first set of analysis particularly on the issue of mental health, um, and what we found was across all of the different mental health types that we assessed, and I've got to say our methodology was very rigorous here, that it wasn't just self-reported, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling anxious, we used the the MINI, which is a, a recognised clinical measure of, um, of mental ill health. And so we found that there was 2.8 times the risk of experiencing any mental health disorder um, if uh, participants had uh, reported experiences of child maltreatment. Those risk factors, uh, sorry, the, the increased risk does depend on the particular outcome. So the strongest one was for PTSD, which kind of makes sense that, um, you know, the type of uh, uh, um, mental health diagnosis that you're likely to get, um, such as PTSD, is predicated on having a type of adversity. But clearly, child maltreatment is absolutely up there, 4.6 times the likelihood of uh, PTSD if you've experienced child maltreatment compared to if you have not. But we still found very strong relationships with the uh, the three other uh, main outcomes that we focused on in these papers. So 3.1 times the likelihood of having an anxiety disorder, 3.2 times the likelihood for depression, and 2.6 times the likelihood of having a severe alcohol use disorder, not just you know, a problem with drinking, but one that classifies the clinical um, diagnostic criteria for severe alcohol use disorder. Uh, and so that very clear pattern of um, differences between those who reported um, experiencing different forms of abuse and neglect and those who didn't um, was very stark across all of those different um, mental health uh, disorders. And um, we found very similar patterns also in relation to what's called um, health risk behaviours. So those kind of behaviours that in themselves can be a consequence of trauma, such as child maltreatment, but in turn bring their own health consequences. And so we're looking at things like smoking and obesity um, and self-harming behaviour, suicide attempts, binge drinking, Um all of those things um, were were related. The most significant ones um, were cannabis dependence, 6.2 times more likely to have that if you had an experience of maltreatment. times more likely to have uh, attempted suicide, and 3.9 times more likely to have engaged in self-harming behaviour in the past 12 months, that is, for self-harm and for suicide. So very strong relationships um, between these health risk behaviours and um, experiences of maltreatment. And then the final paper in our series looked at um, health service utilisation and again same pattern if you've experienced child maltreatment more likely to seek services from um, the medical profession various health services including presentations at hospitals and um, using uh, ambulances etc mental health services if you have experienced child maltreatment compared to if you haven't
2: It's extraordinary to think about the way in which this infiltrates through our health system and through our social justice and education system, Uh, but I wonder if you might like to comment on whether the current services that are available to address and ameliorate, to reduce the incidence of child maltreatment, are they adequate? Are they meeting the need?
0: No. Clearly um, my view is that the adequacy both of our prevention and of our systems to respond to those who've experienced maltreatment um, are not adequate. So they're not up to the volume that we have thought. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge is that we've often seen child maltreatment as being the domain of child protective services. And that is a small boutique group um, of what is a much, much bigger societal problem. And so I think that's the biggest um, shift that we have to make and we have to realize that um, people who have experienced child maltreatment are a much broader section of the population and they are going to be popping up in all of our different types of health services, um, particularly some of those ones that I pointed out before, such as if you're if you're a service provider dealing with um, cannabis dependence or you know substance misuse of any kind, you know the chances are, that your in-scope clientele are child abuse and neglect survivors. And that, that um, you know, will be known at an individual practitioner level, of course, many, many practitioners are ch- turned on to this. But I think at a systems level, we're largely ignorant of this. We don't think of it as a trauma response service. We think of it as a drug and alcohol service. So let's call it what it is. It's a trauma response service.
2: Daryl, that's such an extraordinarily powerful place for us to think about the healthcare sector as a trauma response service. We will take a brief break there and we'll be back in just a moment to continue this important discussion.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: listeners welcome back we're here talking with professor daryl higgins about the findings of the australian child maltreatment study which really are a call to action daryl before the break we talked about the findings and perhaps we could now turn to our turn our attention to to what it is that we can do in response to these findings the findings do reveal heavily gendered patterns of abuse sexual abuse you found is is far higher for girls and more women than men reported neglect and emotional abuse. Physical abuse and exposure to domestic violence were, were similar for both women and men. And this is all playing out in a context of very high levels of violence against women and domestic violence in Australia. And we've had Paddy Kinnisley from Our Watch and Natasha on the spot on the pod in recent years talking about the extent of domestic violence and violence against women in Australia. Based on this study and on your research more broadly, I'd love to hear what you think are the urgent steps that we need to take in ending the kinds of gender inequality and gender-based violence that we see, particularly as it relates to child abuse, to the abuse of girls and to keeping our, our children and our girls particularly safe.
0: Yeah, thanks, Sharon. It's a it's a, an important but challenging area. Um, absolutely, you're right that our findings do point for um, greater burden, if you like, of child maltreatment that is being borne by girls, um, both in terms of differences in prevalence rates, particularly for um, forms of um, maltreatment such as sexual abuse. Um, But, uh, and also I found it in the um, analysis I led on multi-type maltreatment, that girls were more likely to um, experience multiple forms of harm. But that also translated through to the health and mental health consequences. So not only are girls bearing the brunt of um, experiences of maltreatment um, during their childhood, but then they're living with the consequences of that throughout the rest of their lives in terms of that burden of disease, if you like, um, and the difference, gender differences in terms of the mental health and the strength of the association with um, child maltreatment. But the only caution I would have in in um, having responded to that kind of invitation to reflect on the, the gender um, disparity is... Is that it's it's not um, absolutely um, only the the experience of girls that boys also experience all of the forms of maltreatment, including sexual abuse. And so, I would say that we have to focus on all children, but we might need some additional um, investment and targeted strategies. Um, when it comes to girls, on top of the strategies that we should be thinking about for all children. Um, And and I think that's an important way of of framing it, that we don't lose sight of the fact that there are gender differences, um, but that we try and make sure that we are uh, really investing in um, prevention um, across uh, all genders. And, And I should say too, that we, we did have some hints and we're doing some further analysis that um, for those who don't identify as male or female, um, so all of those other gender categories, which we um, did an, an amazing job of um, collecting, the results for them was even worse. So we know that they are even more likely to have experienced maltreatment, particularly multi-type maltreatment. They were the ones who were most likely to to say that they had experienced multi-type maltreatment. Um, so if we're wondering around why it is that um, people who who fall outside of the uh, gender binary um, might suffer from um, uh, mental health uh, issues, not only might it relate to direct experiences of uh, discrimination in adulthood, but it might actually go back to the history of victimization that they have experienced right throughout their life. Um, And that's often not part of our conversation when we're thinking about how do we bring about um, equity and safety for a diverse range of Australians.
2: Daryl, you're really charging us to think structurally about how to prevent and how to contend with this challenge. And one of the strong recommendations from the study is the need for a public health approach with improved health and social justice, human rights at the centre and an emphasis on prevention. That need is clearly urgent. What would you like to see in an accelerated public health approach?
0: Well, that's a it's a big question and um, there's lots and lots of components to that. But um, can I start by, um, first of all, just clarifying what I mean by a public health approach? Because I think that often people use that term that we can mean slightly different things. And I suppose the core issue for me when we're talking about a public health approach is that it's at the whole of population level. You know, it needs to be rolled out to all families, all children, all communities. But within that, there's still capacity for ramping up intensity due to need. And that need might be based on any of those risk factors that we've been talking about. So you might need a slightly different approach or a greater level of intensity for families of girls as opposed to families of boys. Um, you You might also need to have increased or targeted strategies to deal with some of those specific risk factors like financial hardship so just because you 're saying it 's a public health approach doesn 't mean that exactly the same solution has to be applied to everybody, but it does have to come from those publicly um, accessible forms of um, intervention and so you know I straight away think about things like um, if you think of you know the the uh, life experience of from a child's perspective um, their mother is hopefully going to be in contact with a maternal and child health service so you'd start there and you'd say what can we do in that system you then move through early childhood education first of all Do they even have access to it? And then what is the quality of the environment that they're receiving there? And what's the capacity of reaching out and engaging with parents in order to improve their parenting capacity? So I'm kind of getting a little bit closer to actually answering your question, which is things like parenting capacity absolutely have to be core here. That we can see child maltreatment is the failure to provide, you know, safe and supportive environments for children Who are the people that can be responsible for that and can be supported and equipped to provide safe and supportive environments? It's parents. And so how do we get to them? How do we engage them? How do we support them with evidence-based strategies to improve the quality of their parenting? It is evidence-based parenting programs, but that are delivered um, and and evidence-based strategies that are delivered in non-stigmatising ways where parents are in ways that they want, Um, unlike at the moment, if you happen to get a parenting program, it's highly likely that it's been at the direction of a statutory child protection department. So you're seen as a bad parent, and you need to have remedial action taken. And that is totally the wrong way around. You know, we don't give um, antenatal birthing classes to those people that we say are bad mums and do a bad job of giving birth. We say, Everybody can benefit from an antenatal class to prepare for and have the best experience of of giving birth, knowing that there will be some who need a more intense response. Like if they know that the baby's in an awkward position and it's going to be a breech birth, you're going to do something different and more intensively in those kind of antenatal classes compared to somebody who, you know, you can anticipate a vaginal birth and everything's going to go hopefully relatively smoothly but everybody needs the support everybody can benefit from it in different ways unfortunately i just think that we 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 have a reasonable focus in australia on you know that that process of of healthy births and compared to international data we do really well in terms of our you know number of lives births per thousand etc etc um I just think we've lost the ball in terms of valuing children and seeing the health of children growing up safe from violence, um, and we, we've lost sight of the fact that there are concrete actions that we can invest in from a policy perspective across those different domains of you know, health, maternal and child health, early childhood education, schools, etc. That's where we need to be putting the investment into engaging with parents.
1: Daryl, it's music to my ears, I must say, to to hear you talking about the way we can shift our thinking and and shift our approach um, and to think deeply about the quality of services, the way we engage with parents. And I'd add to that, not just focusing on early childhood, but thinking about how we support children and their families and how we support parents in parenting into middle childhood and beyond. I think that's often where we have real gaps.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so we have to take a, a sort of a developmental perspective. Um, and, and as I said before, assume that everybody can benefit from those kind of supports. So it doesn't have to be, you know, signing up for a, you know, a 10-week, you know, structured um, parenting class. That's that's one way of doing it. But there's actually lots of evidence-based supports um, that are around and systems for building capacity of those who are engaging with parents. And so, you know, that is your local GP. It is, you know, the teacher at your at your school or, you know, the, the welfare officer who might be able to, um, you know, have an eye out on families where there might be some additional supports needed and can really do that in a non-stigmatising collaborative way. And uh, that's where I would really like for us to be able to, you know, turn our attention to getting that investment um, compared to, you know, our current approaches.
1: Daryl, in all the research that I've done with children over nearly three decades, relationships with people that they care about and relationships with caring people is always at the heart of what children say is most important. In our research, we see the structural issues and the systems failures that undermine strong and supportive relationships with children. And you've just started to map some of those out in relation to, to parenting, but of course they, they're much broader than that. Um, in the, the articles that you've written from the study, you've highlighted the importance of a systemic approach that uses an ecological model, which to me is about putting children and their relationships Putting care for children and children's human rights at the centre. I wonder if you can kind of build on what you've already said and talk us through what you see as an ecological approach and how that can help us to rethink how children are positioned in policies broadly, but also help us rethink how children are positioned within society.
0: Yeah, look, Sharon, I think you, you've you've really um, you know put your finger on an important issue, and that is putting children at the centre, and clearly. Experiences of child well treatment is when children have not been at the centre. Um, the adults in the environment around them have either Um, failed to act in caring and loving ways or have failed to detect that somebody else is, um, you know, not not acting appropriately. Um, Of course, our definition of sexual abuse included not only um, people inside the family but it included those external to the family, including um, harm from other children and young people, and we know that that's a a big issue and one that um, isn't going away. So to take an ecological perspective does mean putting um, our view firmly on the child, but looking at their, their ecology. You know, where where are they interacting with? So parents are the starting point for that. That's the ones who are most likely to have um, an influence. But, of course, if I was uh, to be talking with my First Nations colleagues, they would be saying, don't just talk about parents, talk about more broadly family. And they might define family in a very different way to the way I might think about, you know, who's in the picture of my mind when I'm talking about a family. Um, And then as we go beyond that, all of those, um, you know, adults um, in the environment who care for children, so they could be in the community. So we have lots of community um, organisations in Australia that engage with children and then engage with families. Um, And across all of those different sectors, if you like, um, flowing out more broadly to society as a whole the core issue that I think we really come back to is the issue of valuing children. How much do we see children and their safety as a policy priority? Um, Because unfortunately, where we have got particular strategies in Australia around addressing different forms of violence, abuse and neglect, um, often it is seen as the responsibility of just one sector, and with almost no investment of money to actually you know drive new prevention um, agendas um, and so often we end up just focusing on doing a better job of the system that we already have rather than turning it around and saying, "How do we stop people from coming in contact with this system?" And you know to use an analogy, if we have uh, a problem with um, incarceration, we don't expect, um, you know, uh, the, the the governor of the local jail to be driving a, um, a crime prevention strategy across the community. We actually have to take that right outside of the prison environment and take it right back to understanding what are those structural drivers? You know, is it about economic um, insecurity or disadvantage or inequity? Um, between people? Is it, um, you know, down to things like poor education? So, you know, we have to have research help us inform what are those drivers, and then work on those drivers right across the whole of the community. So I've already talked about a couple of those. One of those is um, economic hardship within the family. That's certainly something that if we were to take a child rights perspective, we would say no child should grow up in conditions of economic hardship, I think we actually had a prime minister that did say that. But where is the reality of of what that looks like on the ground for children um, now? Um, and certainly, when we ask our adult participants um, what it was like for them, they were telling us that those conditions of growing up in economic hardship. Um, corresponded to increased likelihood that they would also tell us about experiences of child abuse and neglect. So they do go hand in hand. And we know that addressing economic hardship, it's not its not easy. I don't want to be simplistic about it, but there are some very clear policies that could be put in place to address that. And yet we seem to not have the um, uh, the courage, if you like, to uh, to to actually follow through and do what we need to do as a society if we are genuinely going to value and respect children and their right to grow up safe from violence and to live fulfilling lives.
2: It's such a brave conversation today. It's such an important conversation today and it's extraordinary to think about the way in which our society can improve if we address this. The final article in the Medical Journal of Australia concludes by saying that reducing child maltreatment poses formidable challenges, but is a moral imperative and an economic necessity. And of course, it highlights that children's safety and health are at core responsibilities of governments, institutions and individuals. You've mapped out for us the challenges and the pathways forward today, but the task is indeed formidable given the extent of child maltreatment that your study has revealed. Daryl, we could continue speaking with you for many hours and I really do hope to continue this conversation. But as we do wrap today's chat up, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what are the first, most urgent steps that are needed to bring about the change to ensure that all children are safe, valued and cared for.
0: Look, that's a big question, but I think um, one of the things is, first of all, recognise that parents themselves will come to this task of parenting having um, likely experienced their own um, child maltreatment. So it kind of becomes a little bit circular that we have to actually deal with the long-term health and mental health consequences, the trauma consequences of child abuse and neglect. So if we want children to grow up free from violence, let's make sure that their parents aren't still suffering the consequences of the violence that they have experienced as children. So we need to actually um, fix up our adult-oriented systems, our our health systems, our mental health systems, to recognise the very strong likelihood that um, clients are um, victims of one or more forms of child abuse and neglect. We need to invest more, not just in generic parenting programs, but in those strategies that actually recognise that one of the potential Intergenerational transmission mechanisms is by leaving the consequences of child maltreatment unaddressed, and that parents go into the task of parenting blind um, to many of these issues because they themselves have not been given the resources to heal. So it's kind of two things. We absolutely have to invest in what I call primary prevention, so increasing safety of children through those supports for parents and through um, greater awareness of um, professionals uh, to the the signs that um, abuse might be occurring so that we can um, intervene as early as possible, but mostly about um prevention, so trying to uh, equip parents, carers and the community um, as to safe practices, and that goes to things like, um, I would argue we need to ban corporal punishment. We know that corporal punishment in and of itself is a harm to children, goes alongside um, many forms of child abuse and neglect, um, and contributes to long-term harm. So that that's another of the priorities that I would have. But also to focus on the untold um, consequences of things like emotional abuse that we found very clear relationship, particularly between sexual abuse and emotional abuse and the um, the most damaging forms of um consequences in uh, the mental health and well-being of Australians. Um, and yet I think that we we haven't um, got a national strategy to prevent and respond to emotional abuse, um, and yet our data would suggest we need one.
1: Daryl, as someone who has worked in the area of social policy for children and for their families and communities for a very long time, I can genuinely say that this is one of the most important studies on childhood experience that has been undertaken in Australia. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it and thank you for the work that you and your colleagues are doing. This is extraordinary work. It is incredibly important and it gives us the evidence base that we need for change. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Sharon this is such an important conversation for the health and well-being of Australians as I read through the work that's been written uh, and these studies that are published in the medical Journal of Australia for us to think deeply about what it is that causes illness and disease in our community? What sorts of factors are there that might be within our control? Recognising that there are a number of policy areas where if we can reduce or if we can ameliorate or even prevent through social policy change, we may actually significantly improve the health and wellbeing of our community. Sharon, talking about child maltreatment is really hard. You mentioned it at the beginning of today's conversation and I'm sure the listeners today that they've sat through a conversation which is part horrifying but part extraordinarily inspirational because by naming it, we can begin to contend with it. Childhood maltreatment is so much more common than we would hope. Talking about this is of such importance if we want to address it. And I, I can only begin to imagine the health and well-being benefits if we do.
1: Anna oh, Greta absolutely. I mean, some of the, the, the findings that Daryl talked about are just heart-wrenching. Um, they're, as you say, very, very hard to listen to. And as I listen to the evidence that Daryl talks about um, and the evidence that he and his colleagues are are now writing extensively about, I think of some of the things that we're hearing in our research on children's experiences of poverty. Um, And very recently, uh, a young woman who said to us that she was experiencing a a range of the kinds of issues that Daryl has talked about in her life. But she, she added that it's not her parents' fault that she understands that they weren't parented well and they were her words. She understands that their childhoods were very difficult and so that's now flowing onto her. So there was a, a young girl, 12 or 13 years, being able to really, artic- really clearly articulate the intergenerational nature of the kinds of maltreatment that Daryl's been talking about. Um, We need to listen to that and and we need to respond. And I also think Anna Greta of a a mum that we interviewed not long ago who talked about her own experiences of maltreatment as a child but then also talked about the economic hardship that she faces every day. And this is a woman who, when I asked her what her, her average day looked like, said that every single day was a struggle to find food to feed her children. Um, and so here we have someone who was traumatised in childhood, being re-traumatised by the poverty that they're experiencing, but also the lack of services and the structural barriers that they face day after day after day. know, there's, there's, There are some real challenges facing us, but as Sarah pointed out, there are some things that we can do immediately, and perhaps our listeners won't be surprised to hear me say that one of the things that we can do immediately is to think about how we address poverty. And we know how we can address poverty in Australia. One of the very first things that we can do is to increase sole parenting payment. We can take away some of the conditions that put extra pressure on parents, and we can increase the rate of working age benefits across the board, particularly where there are children in families. And from there, we need to look at how we increase minimum wage. We need to look at how we make housing affordable for all. They're big challenges. They are not beyond us. And they're possible if we put children at the centre of our thinking around policy.
2: Absolutely. Listeners, this podcast has spoken about some challenging topics. If it has raised some issues for you or someone you know needs support, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. For children and young people, there's also Kids Helpline on 1800 555 1800. This podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed in the show notes. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes and if you're feeling generous you can leave us a review it's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast we love hearing from our audience so please do
1: reach out to us on twitter at apps policy forum that's at appspolicyforum or flick us an email at podcast at policyforum.net that's all we have time for today so from me
2: shara Bessel, it's bye bye for now And from me, Ana Greta Hunter, see you next week.